So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 15. We will be in verses 1 to 15. Mark chapter 15, verses 1 to 15. The phrase delivered up is defined as to surrender someone or something to another who demands it. It is to hand over something or someone, actually be delivered up. And I'm not talking about movies, and I'm definitely not talking about action movies, but in real life, have you seen it happen? See, the thing about being delivered up is that it can either be a good thing situation. To give a few examples, you see, during a time of race-based chattel slavery, a runaway slave, if they were to get caught, they would not be assisted in their pursuit of freedom, but likely, sadly, they would be returned to the slave master and which would inevitably result in suffering and likely their own death. You know, or think about a missing person, how we get those alerts on our phone, and sometimes you drive down a highway, you see a billboard of someone who's missing, making it known, authorities making it known a person is missing. Now, if they were found safely and handed over to the authorities, it would be a really good thing. Or think about a criminal being on the run. Police would like for us to hand over any information that we know about them their whereabouts, or even hand them over. To bring it closer to home, let's say someone stole something from us. We would certainly desire for them to be caught and for those possessions to be handed over. Morning's passage, we will see Jesus, the Son of God, the innocent one, be handed over to be crucified. And y'all, this handing over, it was both atrocious and amazing. It was terrible and wonderful. So we will see it in this passage. Mark chapter 15, verses 1 to 15. If you're able to, please stand for the reading of God's word. As soon as it was morning... Having held a meeting with the elders, scribes, and the whole Sanhedrin, the chief priests tied Jesus up, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. So Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, You say so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. Pilate questioned him again, Aren't you going to answer? Look how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still did not answer. And so Pilate was amazed. At the festival, Pilate used to release for the people a prisoner whom they requested. There was one named Barabbas, who was in. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them as was his custom. Pilate answered them, do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? For he knew it was because of envy that the chief priests had handed him over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he would release Barabbas to them instead. Pilate asked them again, then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? Again, they shouted, crucify him. 
Pilate said to them, why, what has he done wrong? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them, and after having Jesus flogged, he handed, he handed him over to be crucified. You may be seated. So our big idea for this morning's passage is this. Jesus is delivered up to be crucified for our salvation. Jesus is delivered up to be crucified for our salvation. In this passage, we have two scenes And in both scenes, we would see Jesus be handed over. The first scene, he would be handed over. He'd be handed over for crucifixion. In the first scene, we see Jesus be handed over to Pilate. In the second scene, he'd be handed over for crucifixion. So last week, Jesus was on trial before the Sanhedrin. And though falsely accused, the charges didn't stick. He was questioned by the high priest where he confessed to be the son of God, the Christ, and that he he promised that he would be exalted and that he would be enthroned. Well, the response wasn't repentance as one would have hoped, but they charged Jesus with blasphemy. And then we saw how Peter, he was fearful for his life, and so he denied Jesus three times, and we talked about how we are like, our, like Peter, we ourselves are tempted to deny Jesus. One thing I forgot to say um, that I'll just say right now is the way that we resist the temptation to deny Jesus is by treasuring Jesus. That is how we resist the temptation to deny him because we will not deny what or who we treasure. Now, how do we cultivate a heart that treasures Jesus? It is through the ordinary means of grace, the spiritual disciplines. As we read and study scripture, as we pray both privately and corporately, as we gather on the Lord's day, sit under the preached word, as we take of the Lord's supper, our affections for the Lord Jesus grows. You see, as we die to ourselves, and engage in the means of grace. Our affections for Christ grow, and as our affections for him grow, we will give up ourselves for him. And so, beloved, may we treasure Christ, for there is no one or nothing more glorious than him. And so this brings us to our first scene where we see Jesus was handed over. You see, the passage, it took place early morning after Jesus' beatings, The Sanhedrin have already reached a verdict. They said that Jesus has committed blasphemy. And so now they must decide how they would charge Jesus to Pilate. You see, they must provide a political charge, one that Rome would take serious, that will result in Jesus' execution. And they treated Jesus as a criminal. They beat him and bound him and delivered him up to Pilate with one purpose— executing him, killing him. And y'all, all of this happened as Jesus predicted. As I read last week, it'll be good for us to see this again 
Mark chapter 10, verse 33 and 34. See, we are to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And he will rise after three days. You see, what Jesus was predicted to the exact detail, it happened as God planned. You see, the Sanhedrin were at work, and so was God. Acts chapter 2 says that though Jesus was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you see, they were working their condemning purposes, and God was sovereignly at work for his saving purposes. You see, God used Jesus' suffering and humiliation to accomplish the greatest purpose we've ever imagined, the salvation of sinners. You see, if God was at work in Jesus' humiliation, beloved, this means that we can trust that God will be at work in our suffering. You see, God doesn't only work in sweet seasons. When ministry is growing, when business is booming, when your kids are obeying, but God also is at work in our trials. When we're persecuted for our faith, when we experience the loss of a job, when this, you see, God is never idle, nor is he ever inactive. You see, his purposes are always good for his people in all things. You see here, they presented Jesus to Pilate as if they were doing Pilate a favor. When in actuality, they were, having, they were trying to get Pilate to do his bidding, their bidding. Now, one may wonder why Pilate. Well, he was the governor, and so he had authority to execute. Now, there was a bad relationship between the Jews and Pilate. Both of them hated each other. In Luke chapter 13, Pilate, in fact, would have Jews killed and mixed their blood with their own sacrifice. And despite there being a hostile relationship between, between the Jews and Pilate, they still brought Jesus to him and gave political accusations. And in the next few verses, we will see a brief summary of the trial. Look at verses 2 to 5. So Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, you say so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. Pilate questioned him again, aren't you going to answer? Look how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still did not answer. And so Pilate was amazed. And the main charge was that Jesus was the king of the Jews. And y'all, this implied that Jesus was at enmity with Caesar and Rome, that he was an enemy, that he was an insurrectionist who's trying to start a revolution. Now, because last week we saw how Jesus declared that he is the Christ, it was permissible for them to say that he's the king of the Jews. And yet, the chief priests were deceptive. But Jesus wasn't trying to overthrow Rome Jesus came to make peace between God and man through the cross. He didn't come to make war with Caesar and conquer Rome by force. So Pilate hears the accusations, and he asked him, Are you the king 
of the Jews. And y'all, these are the only words that Jesus uttered in the passage. And what did he say? You say so. You see, in this moment, Jesus wasn't being facetious. And he wasn't being disrespectful. What was happening here is that he affirmed his kingship with a qualification. He's saying, yes, he is the king, but he's not the type of king that Pilate assumed. You see, their conceptions of Jesus' kingship were on two opposite ends of the spectrum. You see, Jesus is the messianic king, and he's therefore the king of the Jews. However, his kingship doesn't only impact the Jews, but it impacts all nations. You see, in Psalm 2, the Lord said that he will make the nations his inheritance. It is to this king that all people must, must turn from their rebellion and place their trust in Jesus. So the gospel goes forth, not just in Jerusalem, but to the ends of the earth. You see, Jesus is the king, and his kingdom is literal, but it wasn't earthly or physical. You see, his kingdom is heavenly and spiritual. It is otherworldly, eternal. It is eschatological. Y'all, it is not of this age. It is the coming age that is breaking into this age. And though it is not of this world, his kingdom certainly impacts this world. You see, his kingdom was not one of war, but it was one of peace. It was not marked by sin, but it was marked by love. You see, the Lord Jesus, he is the king who brings the kingdom. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. You see, this kingdom, it was inaugurated through Jesus' death and resurrection. It was the very means by which he would come into power was through his suffering. And he currently reigns now over all rule and authority, over power and dominion. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. Y'all, his kingdom advances not through war or violence, but through preaching. It is the proclamation of the gospel. And people are brought into his kingdom, not because they are physically captured, but because they were cut to the heart when they heard the gospel. They respond with repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus. And those who are in the kingdom, we have been reconciled to God through Christ. And we who are in the kingdom have been united to one another in Christ. And as we are citizens of that kingdom, we are to reflect our glorious king in all of our conduct. And in fact, our gatherings is a foretaste of the kingdom. You see, y'all, Jesus is the king, but he's not the kind of king that Pilate had assumed. And yet, his kingship impacts Pilate and Caesar. You see, both of them will bow their knee and confess Christ. And all people will bow and confess that Jesus, kings, their reign will come to an end. The Lord Jesus' reign is eternal. He reigns. He will reign forever. And so, yes, he is king, but he is not the kind of king that Pilate had assumed. Well, in verses 3 to 5, 
The chief priests, they give numerous charges. And in Luke chapter 23, verses 1 and 2, it makes known the, the specific charges that they're laying upon Jesus. Pilate gives Jesus an opportunity to defend himself. And look how Jesus responded. Verse 5. But Jesus still did not answer. And so Pilate was amazed. You see here, Jesus was silent before Pilate as he was before the high priest in the previous section. And what's happening here is he's fulfilling what Scripture says about the suffering servant. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. You see, though he was falsely accused, he refused to defend himself. What's happening here is that he is submitting himself to the will of the Father. It is said it is like this in 1 Peter. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. You see, Jesus submitted himself to the will of the Father because he trusted the Father. And as we saw last week, I'll say it again, right, and we see it right now. Jesus is being vilified by these men, but he will be vindicated. As he promised, they will see the Son of Man be exalted and enthroned. You see, he will end in his resurrection and his exaltation and his enthronement. He was silent before Pilate, and his silence stunned Pilate. So much so that Pilate begins to believe that Jesus was innocent. And we will see that even more in the next section. You see, in this section, we see Jesus be mistreated and that he was misjudged. His ministry was maligned. They rejected, he obeyed the Father. His obedience to the will of the Father resulted in this Rejection, persecution, being delivered up to be condemned. Beloved, if this happened to our Lord, then we as his followers should expect the same treatment. Because identifying with Jesus will result in us suffering like Jesus. Because the world hates Jesus. If you've seen this all throughout church history, how Christians have been handed over to political figures and have been condemned to die. It, it didn't only happen back then, but it's also happening now all over the world. We experience it in some measure here. You see, we will be misjudged, mistreated. Our ministry will be maligned. You see, our gospel is one of grace and forgiveness, and yet it's labeled as hate speech. The message that we proclaim brings about joy and freedom, and it's perceived to be oppressive and enslaving. You see, our way of life is according to the word of God, and yet they say that it's archaic, countercultural, and outdated. You guys, faithfulness to the Lord Jesus, it will not be championed by the world but we will be, for our faith in Christ, we will suffer, whether it be a loss of a job, the loss of friendships, or the loss of family. And it's all because they hate Jesus. 
And a question for us is, how should we respond when we experience such persecution? Jesus is our example. We submit ourselves to the will of the Father and we trust him. Now, one may object. We all, one may object like, man, we ain't Jesus. Okay, he was in control. He knew how things will end. To which I say, man, yeah, we're not him. But his father is ours. The father who loved us, who adopted us, who has justified us, who promises to be with us, who is sovereign over us. We can submit ourselves to him and trust him as we are suffering on account of Jesus. You see, our father hasn't lost an ounce of control. His grip hasn't been loosed. His hand, we are in his hand and no one can pluck us out of it. You see, the reality is we might not know what will happen next and we might not even know how the situation will end, but we know how all things will end. God has revealed it and it won't change. The new heavens and a new earth where we... So as we suffer for him, May we entrust ourselves to him, and may we be faithful all the way unto death, knowing that on that day we will be vindicated like our king, and we will reign with our king. Just as how Jesus was delivered up, it wasn't his end. Beloved, if we're delivered up for our faith in Jesus, it will not be our end, but we will reign with him. And so... Here we've seen our king be handed over to Pilate, and now we'll see our king be handed over for crucifixion. Look at verses 6 to 9. At the festival, Pilate used, used to release for the people a prisoner whom they requested. There was one named Barabbas who was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them as was his custom. Pilate answered them, do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? And so Pilate, he attended the Jewish festivals. It was a custom that at this festival that he would grant amnesty to one criminal. And the reality is we don't know how long this custom had been going on. We don't know when it started. But we do know that it's been happening and that Pilate has the authority to do so because he was the governor. And the process by which it was democratic. Majority vote wins. You know, it's like voting for a homecoming king, except the results won't result in a crown, but charges will be dropped. And here Pilate puts forth two people. First, we see that he puts forth Barabbas. And Barabbas' name means son of the father. Barabbas was a Jew, likely a zealot. He was imprisoned for heinous crimes of murder and treason. He the one who actually hated and opposed Rome and Caesar. He attempted an uprising, a revolution. Think about the resistance on Hunger Games. He was a murderer. This man was wicked and guilty, and his sins were publicly known. Unrighteous. And the second person that he put forth is Jesus the actual son of the father, 
the eternally begotten one who's always reigned with the Father in love, who became man, who perfectly obeyed, who is sinless and innocent. He is righteous. The contrast between Jesus and Barabbas couldn't be more stark. One is righteous through his obedience. He's the king. He should be worshipped. One is unrighteous. He has rebelled. He has committed murder. He stands guilty. And so Pilate, believing Jesus to be innocent, desiring Jesus to be released, he knew that the chief priest had malicious intentions. Why do I say this? Look at verse 10. For he knew it was because of envy that the chief priest had handed him over. They were envious of Jesus. They hated him and were hating on him. One commentary would define envy as grief or anger caused by another's success. And this was true of the chief priests. They were jealous of Jesus. You see, envy is to be discontent in light of what others have. Y'all, envy is as much about God as it is about others. You see, when we're envious, we're angry under the assumption that God has chosen someone else over us. You see, envy to a certain degree. And y'all, we're normally envious about what someone else has that we really want. What is that for you? A fruitful ministry? Marriage? Success at work? Influence? What is it for you? See, envy is in the heart. It's hard to discern. And y'all, it's hardly ever confessed. No one ever wants to admit that they're envious of someone else, that they were hating on them because of their success or whatever it is that's going on with them. You see, the reality is when we are envious, we're failing to recognize God's personal goodness towards us. Y'all, envy is unloving for it is oriented around the self where love is oriented around others. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4 says, love does not envy. And y'all, what envy produces is destructive. It produces, y'all, what community flourished because of envy? But you can, num- you can name a number of communities that were ruined because of envy. And y'all, we all struggle with this, so we must put this thing to death. We must put it away. So the question for us is, how do we kill envy? Got five ways for us. Number one, we must remember what we actually deserve. You see, we do not deserve God's love or his goodness or his mercy or his righteousness. In fact, we deserve his judgment because we have rebelled against him. We have not loved him. So may we remember what we deserve, but may we also recall what we have in Christ, that God in his love would give up his son, that we have forgiveness and mercy, salvation. He has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
he has withheld no goodness from us. Third, we need to grow in gratitude. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18 says, Give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You see, a grateful heart won't be envious. Fourth, we should praise God for his sovereignty over us. Knowing that he is God, he is over us, and his sovereignty is for our good. You see, what's implicit in envying is that we assume that God has forgotten us and that he's not being good to us. Well, y'all, God has never forgotten his people. Isaiah chapter 49, this is a great verse to meditate on if you struggle with envy. It reads this, can a woman forget her nursing child or lack compassion for the child of her womb? Even if these forget, yet I will not forget you. God has not, nor will he ever forget his people. And fifth and finally, may we pray and praise God for what he is doing in and through others. You see, it's hard to envy someone when you're praying for the Lord to continue to flourish them. So they envied Jesus. Look at verse 11. They put some before them. Look what happens. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he would release Barabbas to them instead. You see, to their shame, they demanded Barabbas one who was guilty, a notorious criminal, and why? He said, the chief priest stirred up the crowd. They instigated the crowd to demand for Barabbas to be released. Behold the influence that the religious leaders had over the crowd, that they swayed the crowd to oppose the sinless and righteous one. You see, nowadays, everybody wants to be a leader and an influencer. In fact, You even have social media, Twitter, trying to find out how many followers you have. And in fact, even on social media, people, have you ever thought, or have you begun to question, man, what type of influence do they have? Are they pushing people towards Jesus or pulling them away from him? You see, there's no neutrality. One's influence is either doing one or the other. Beloved, who is influencing you? Who are you following? Have you been more spurred on to love Jesus because you follow them and have been influenced by them? Or have you been drifting because you are obeying their advice? And not only that, how are you stewarding your influence? Are you encouraging godliness or worldliness? Are you spurring people on to love and good deeds, or are you spurring people on towards sin and ungodliness? You see, by God's grace, the Lord has saved us. We are citizens of his kingdom, and so our influence should point to the kingdom that we are a part of. It should be done in our parenting. It should be done in our friendships and in our interactions with our neighbors and our coworkers. Influence for God's purposes, pointing them to the only king, Jesus. So here we see Pilate's plan backfired. They demanded Jesus. 
when they demanded Barabbas, how did Pilate respond? Look at verses 12 to 14. Pilate asked them again, then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? Again, they shouted, crucify him. Pilate said to them, why? What has he done wrong? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. You see, Pilate was in a dilemma. They suggested Jesus' crucifixion. Now, the crucifixion, it was a capital offense. It was a capital punishment for a capital offense where one's wrists and ankles were nailed to a wooden beam to the cross. It was a slow, humiliating, and excruciating way to die. It was so brutal that the Romans would rarely crucify their own. But the geological reasons behind this demand. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, it says, If anyone is found guilty of an offense deserving the death penalty and is executed and you hang his body on a tree, you are not to leave his corpse on a tree overnight, but to on a tree is under God's curse. You see, here we see how they viewed Jesus. They didn't view him to be the son of God, but they viewed him to be a blasphemer and accursed by God. They demand his crucifixion. And yet they're failing to see that Jesus is sinless and that he would be accursed. But it wouldn't be because of his sin, for he has none. It would be for our sins. He would be the substitute. It's Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. You see, Scripture speaks and prophesies that the suffering servant, suffering servant, that he would suffer, but it would be for the sins of others. We read it earlier in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on iniquity of us all. Verse 10, yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely when you make him a guilt offering. Verse 12, yet he bore the sin of many. You see, the crucifixion was the very and only means by which we who are sinners would be saved. There was no other way. It's not our works, no amount of money that we could have, no good that we can do. In fact, we're not good at all. You see, God's wrath against sin had to be satisfied. Blood had to be shed. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And this would be accomplished through Jesus' death on our behalf. You see, they're at work trying to condemn Jesus. And God the Father is at work as he would condemn his son to save us. How would Pilate respond to their persistence? He would let it prevail. You see, the governor ended up being governed by the people. Look what Pilate did, verse 15. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. 
You see, Pilate concedes for political gain to boost his ratings with the Jews. And did you catch the motive? It said that he wanted to satisfy the crowd. You see, he knew that Jesus was innocent. Did you catch it in verse 14? He asked, why? You have the governor saying, what has he done wrong? He believed Jesus to be innocent. And yet he would condemn Jesus to please the crowd. You see, he would rather do something to be liked than do what was right. He would hand Jesus over to be flogged and deliver Jesus up to be crucified. You see, our passage concludes with the criminal being released and the sinless one being condemned for crucifixion. And y'all, this is a clear picture of the gospel. You see, Barabbas represents us. Like him, we are sinners. We're guilty before God. We are wicked. We're unrighteous. We're not better than him, nor were we ahead of him. Scripture says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We say, yeah, we might not have committed physical murder, but we have committed murder in our hearts as we were angry with people. We've lied. We've lusted. Like Barabbas' sins were public, our sins. He knows every sinful thought we've ever thought, every sinful word we've ever uttered, every sinful motive we've ever had, and every sinful deed we have ever done. And y'all, God is just. We can't bargain with him. We can't convince him to lower his standard or shorten the sentence. He will not compromise his justice. So we stand condemned. As Barabbas was released from his penalty in the passage, so in Christ we have been released from the wrath that we rightfully deserve. Barabbas was released not because of his works or campaign. He didn't persuade the crowd. He did absolutely nothing. And, y'all, we were released from wrath not because of our good works, not because we were charming, not because we convinced God or persuaded him or won him, but because God was gracious. He poured out his grace on us by condemning his son for us. Romans 5 says, but God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. See, God in his love gave up his son to redeem us. If you're not a Christian, friends, I'm glad that you're here. I wonder, how is this landing on you right now? As this is a picture of what has taken place for sinners who have trusted in Jesus. You see, like Barabbas' sins were publicly known, God knows every sin you've ever committed. Even the secret sins you wish that no one would ever find out. He knows all of them. And I'm not sure if you know this, but that same God is a God of love who sent his only begotten son to suffer the penalty that we rightfully deserve so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be saved. Jesus died and resurrected three days later, 
and all who trust in him, he offers forgiveness, eternal life. Your sins may be known before all people. They can be forgiven by God. You must turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. Today, I would implore you to turn to Christ and be saved. If you want to talk more, you can talk to any of our members. You see, in this section, the word released, it's mentioned four times. And it concludes with the guilty being released and the innocent being condemned. You see, in the passage, Barabbas was released and Jesus was condemned. We all, in the gospel, something that's even greater happened for us. Because in the gospel, we who are guilty and unrighteous, we were released because Jesus was condemned. And when Jesus was condemned, it was for us. He paid the penalty in our place. He suffered for our sins. And so because of that, we are forgiven. Y'all, this is the great exchange where Christ bore our sin. He bore the wrath that we rightfully deserve, and in him we get forgiveness, and he gives us his righteousness. Second Corinthians says it this way, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, for us, for us, for us, so that in him we might, but death had to occur, and a death did occur, but it wasn't us who died. It was the Son of God in our place. The proper phrase is penal substitutionary atonement, where Jesus bore the penalty in our place to cover our sins. And because of that, we have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, reconciled to God, forgiven and saved. See, as I said earlier, the handing over of Jesus was both atrocious and amazing. You see, it was atrocious that Pilate would hand over Jesus, the innocent Son of God. And yet it was to fulfill God's eternal plan. The very plan that he had before creation was being worked out in real time. And as atrocious as it was, it was amazing that God would give up his Son for us. It was gracious of God to give up his son that he may ransom us. You see, Pilate did it to satisfy the crowd, whereas God the Father did it because he loved us. It was out of love for us. It wasn't because we demanded it, but because his justice demanded it. It wasn't to satisfy us, but to save his wrath. And it wasn't because we convinced him, but it was because he had compassion on us. You see, it wasn't because we loved God, but that he loved us. That he would not withhold his own son. You see, it is through the giving of the son that we behold the love of God for us. If you ever want to know or see most vividly and supremely God's love for you, you look to the cross of Jesus Christ in the empty tomb where he bore our sins. You see, it's because of God's love for us that we went from being rebels to being royalty, 
from being condemned to being crowned with Christ Jesus, from being children of destruction to being sons and daughters of God and co-heirs with Christ. Behold God's love for you. It is through the giving of his son. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for your saving work. God, that in this is love and sent your son to be the propitiation for our sins. For God, you did not give us what we deserve, but you gave us your grace. You gave us your son. You gave us his righteousness. You gave us his sonship. We praise you for the ways that you displayed your love. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. You know, as we've seen God's love displayed through the giving of his son, it is only fitting that we sing of his love. And that's what we sing in a first hymn, Here is Love. And then we will sing of the great exchange as we sing of Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. Let's stand and praise God for his love for us in Christ.